Hello and welcome to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. I'm Vivian Parry and once upon a time I was a student here at UCL. Today I'm a writer, broadcaster and the lucky person that gets to host this UCL Minds podcast. I've been talking to some of the amazing UCL community using their skills and expertise to understand coronavirus and to try and combat its impact. Over the last three months, I've spoken to psychologists, engineers and historians, to name just a few of the dizzying array of experts this place has on hand, about every possible aspect of the pandemic, from the best way to make a mask, to how to map the spread of the virus, to how to build life-saving technology. You can hear all 12, yes, 12 of our previous episodes, wherever you found this one. My guests this week are an education scholar, a paediatrician and a teacher. And as you might have guessed, our topic of discussion is children and how they've been affected by coronavirus. My first guest is Dr Lee Hudson, who's a clinical associate professor and honorary consultant general paediatrician in the GOSH UCL Institute of Child Health. He specialises in teen health, especially their mental health, with an interest in eating disorders. I'm also joined by Dr. Amelia Roberts, a principal teaching fellow in the IOE, who leads on the knowledge exchange programme SWIRL, which stands for Supporting Wellbeing, Emotional Regulation and Learning, and whose research helps create learning that's more accessible and inclusive. My third guest this week is Shafina Vora, and we've been debating whether to let her in because she's a PhD student at Imperial, but we are going to let her onto this podcast because she is an IOE alumna. She's also a psychology teacher and faculty leader, and she's researching education through boundary objects. Perhaps she'll tell us about that a bit later. I'm going to start, though, with Lee. Can you outline the ways that lockdown has impacted children and young people? Sure. So um, I think the first thing to do is to start with a contrast um, of how the infection itself has affected children and young people. Um, we've got enough data now and experience to know that while some children do get unwell with COVID, um, the vast majority of children actually do not seem to be infected at all. And so I think it's it's interesting to reflect as an age group compared to other age groups, that the major impact that COVID is likely to have is on mental health and also broader aspects of their health. Obviously, the pandemic's been around for around six months internationally now and in Europe for three months. Um, The data is not entirely clear. The data we have is mostly cross-sectional, so at at one point in time. But what seems to be clear from different settings in the world, including some reports that have come out from the UK, is that it seems to be the younger children, so the four to ten-year-olds, who seem to be affected more. And they seem to be affected in multiple ways with emotional difficulties more unhappy and more worried. There's also some evidence that their parents um, are affected as well. Um, and then of course, people live in systems and exist in systems. And so those things can, can be difficult for, for both ages. Interestingly, teenagers, in, at least in um, one study from Oxford University, the COFE space study shows that teenagers actually probably haven't done as badly. Um, you could speculate about why that might be. They're not in school at the moment and the pressures that are around when you're 15 and 16. So it's the younger children that have really um, been affected. The slightly older 16 to 24 year olds, that they seem to have been affected by anxiety as well. And, and um, that that's a, a big problem from the data we have. So I think overall, it's going to be mental health and it's going to be things like the way that the economy and the way that lack of education is going to affect this generation 
Um, and that's what I'm really worried about. So how about physical health? Because a lot of uh, children have literally had to be stuck inside for a very long time. Are we worried about the consequences of not having enough exercise for children? Because exercise isn't just something that they, you know, it's a nice to have. It's actually very important developmentally as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, you know, the, the idea that you can separate the body and the mind, you know, that, that I think most people now realise that that's, that's not how it works. And, you know, exercise and physical activity and getting out and about is uh, is really quite important for mental health as well as physical health. And they play off each other. I mean, it, thankfully, um, we are coming out of lockdown now. And so the period of time has been quite short, but certainly... You know, children and young people definitely have had less physical activity that will affect their mental health. It almost certainly will affect a significant proportion of um, children and young people's um, uh, BMI, their their um, their body weight and their health over time. And we know that, um, you know, cumulative gain in weight in children in a, in a bad way uh, it sets people off on a on a on a trajectory. So. It's likely that that has affected things. I mean, one of the really interesting things about eating that's come out of the um, UCOPE study, which is a study that's been um, joint between UCL and Imperial, looking at 18, uh, 16, 24 year olds, is that a significant uh, number of young people have been overeating, as they would describe it, in response to stress. So, as well as the reduction in physical activity, we're also likely to have seen some impact on the way that people have been eating in response to stress and emotions, which we know is quite common in, in that in, in, with, with those emotions. Yeah, the fact that you haven't been able to get flour for a very long time because everybody was doing home baking should probably tell you that you know, those, that flour had to be turned into cakes and biscuits, which had to be eaten by somebody. So there's, there's been a lot of eating that's uh, going on. And of course, for little children, Meeting other children is actually part of their social development and also part of them, their, their brain's development. I mean, they need to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people are often critical of social media. Um, you know, like all things, social media and the Internet use has got some very bad problems, but some also very good ones. So I think we are lucky and children and young people are lucky, um, if you could use that word, to be in a generation where at least we are networked and we can still see and talk to friends and they can still see and talk to their schools in some cases um, whereas if this had happened 10 15 years ago that would have been very different but absolutely there's no um, you know there's no compensation for not seeing um, children not seeing each other and, and you know I've got I've got three young children myself and um, as they some of them some of them have gone back to school and they've been interacting with their peers more directly you can visibly see the impact that's had upon them so uh, let's look at the future now. Uh, now that lockdown is ending, I mean, I know that parents are praying, in the, well, most parents are praying to get their children back to school in September. But what kind of impacts do you think the past few months could have on children in the long term, health-wise? Well, I think it's going to be, it's going to differ by different groups of children, really. Um, you know, I mean, some children will have probably managed to get through this short period of time, had some home education, have had potentially a bit more of a relaxed time. Maybe families have actually spent more time together um, in, in lockdown. So I don't think we can say it's all doom and gloom. However, there are certain groups of children that I do worry about. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people have commented 
on the fact that it's certain you know socioeconomic groups of children families where we knew that you know, education is important who may not have been accessing education online um, children don't have, may not have had laptops or technology to be able to do that sort of thing so I think there are certain groups and my real big worry is that the poverty gap that was there already may have been affected significantly um, and so that will have almost certainly impacted on certain groups of children more than others I mean the other uncertainty of course is we don't really know where we're going with Covid I'm trying to be optimistic because I think we all should be but we're, we're far from out of it still and um, we all hope that children will go back in September. And I, I believe sincerely that children should go back to school in September on balance for their well-being. But, you know, we may well be in this for the long haul. And so the, those children that I've already talked about and ultimately maybe all children will continue to be affected as as this goes on. And it's interesting, I say lots of parents are desperate to get their children back to school. But there's a the last poll that I saw 25% of parents did not intend to send their children back to school in September. That's quite a large number of parents. It is a large number. And I think this will be one of the the challenges. I mean, clearly, the message about the danger of coronavirus and the importance of lockdown um, has got through effectively in lots of ways. And so that's changed the way that people think about it. Um, I mean, certainly... As someone who is a parent and someone who looks after children and so, and also has looked after a significant proportion of the children who've had the post-inflammatory condition with COVID and looked after children on a COVID ward, the like I said earlier, the direct impact of the virus is very low. Um, so on balance, you know, children should be in school and some of them will get, children will get coronavirus. Um, there's no evidence that they spread it more, but some of them will get coronavirus. So you can understand why some families are worried about the risk to their children or potentially the risk that they will carry coronavirus back to their own families at home. So it's not a straightforward argument, but I would say as a, you know, on all three of those, as a, someone who's interested in epidemiology of child health, who looks after children and has my own children, I would say on balance there, and life is about risk, and we often have to make balanced judgments about risk for our children. Even every time you get a child, put a child into a car, you're making a risk judgment about you might get into a car crash and a significant more greater number of children die in car crashes or road traffic accidents than have died from COVID. So, but we, we still will be using cars. So there is a risk issue, but that's very difficult and really hard for families. So I don't think anyone should condemn them on that at all. But we do I do worry about the long-term effects that will have um, social. Well, th- thank you very much. Our, a running theme actually across this whole podcast series has been exploring how lockdown has affected different groups of people in different ways. And Lee's already mentioned this with children. Uh, Amelia, which groups of children have been most impacted by lockdown and in what ways? Um, yes, that's a great question. I mean, if, if we look at some of the OECD data, that's the um, Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, they are most concerned about children in poverty, children with mental health difficulties or whose families have mental health issues. They are worried about children with special educational needs or children who are in detention or children who are in refugee scenarios. So what we're really looking at is that any child who's in a situation of disadvantage is likely to be more affected by COVID-19. And the Sutton Trust did a report looking at social mobility in COVID-19. 
And some areas of real concern are the widening attainment gap in early years. And there's lots of reasons for that, but we know that building relationships with younger children, socialization skills, and also vocabulary and language skills have a, an, an ongoing impact on their school attainment and their lifelong chances. We also know that a third of families, this is reported also by the Sutton Trust, a third of families don't have a separate computer for children, which means that those children aren't going to be able to access learning in the same way. And from the same report, we also know that schools in richer areas, which in the UK is defined by children being on free school meals or not being on free school meals, the gap between schools that are able to broadcast lessons to children is actually 47% in richer areas and only 34% in poorer areas. And the schools in the poorer areas, only about half of those are accepting work remotely from children compared to 75% in more affluent areas. So we're absolutely seeing an impact in terms of more vulnerable people and less vulnerable people being affected disproportionately by COVID-19. And I just want to flag up something else, but in terms of safeguarding and young people's mental health, we know that the organisation Refuge that um, helps families who have experienced domestic violence, we know that there has been a 700% increase in calls and a similar picture for the NSPCC Childline their calls have gone up 300% from 545 to 2,274. That is really scary, isn't it? Really yes. scary. It, it really is. So one of the issues that I think um, is really important to think about is that for some children, very sadly, their homes are not a particularly safe place to be. So when a child is trapped in a home environment that is dangerous or very, very stressful, then the impact of long-term stress on their mental health is significantly problematic. And that's one reason why moving children back into school really is a good idea for many, many young people. The pressures that have been put on parents, guardians and carers during the lockdown has been absolutely immense. Um, you know, if you particularly if you don't have much space, you're sharing with other people, several uh, other families, even in some cases. This is a huge pressure that parents know that they are facing these difficulties, but there's very little that they can do about them in order to help their children, which must be a terrible feeling. Um, I think it's been incredibly tough on families. I mean, typically families had two days of notice before lockdown. And so whatever a family was juggling, whether it was work or newly working from home, suddenly having to homeschool as well, I think has been incredibly challenging. And many parents have been really worried about their children falling back in terms of education. And I think one of the messages that's really important to give is that many children will pick up on their learning when they go back into school. So we have concepts such as neuroplasticity, which talk about how the brain is very adaptable. And so for many children, when they go back into school, they will be able to pick up on their learning and pick up on their social skills. But here again, we have that gap between the advantage and the disadvantage. So the child that was already vulnerable, already falling behind, the impact on their confidence when they go back into school could be a significant factor. 
But I do think it's important to say that it's not all doom and gloom for parents. So one of our um, professors at the Institute of Education, Gemma Moss, has talked about um, a real increase in love of reading. There are other reports of children who are made very anxious by maths, being able to really get to grips with numerical concepts by using real life learning. You've got children with autism, and this comes from Dr. Georgia Pavlopoulou's research, children with autism whose anxiety may actually be decreased because they're not having to confront the outside world and conform to those expectations. Also, some people are reporting that um, relationship building has become stronger. So the picture isn't all black and white. We have to think of a nuanced picture in respect of COVID-19. And for those children that experience bullying at school, this has been a welcome release. Yes, um, I'll tell you why I'm tentative. This is again from the OECD, but they have said that there's been a rise in cyberbullying. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> so again, we've got a mixed picture. But you are absolutely right. For some children who found school really difficult, the opportunity to take a break um, build up learning in a different kind of way has been really powerful. And I think it's important to say that any work that parents have done with children that have developed their vocabulary and their oracy and their critical thinking and their love of learning through projects and things that the whole family can get engaged in, that actually will stand children in very good stead. And I'm particularly referencing Professor Julie Dockrell's research on the value of vocabulary and, and oracy in terms of attainment and lifelong chances and in fact mental health and well-being. And it's particularly difficult then for the children of refugee families whose uh, first language is not English, where their children are taught in English and they don't have the skills to be able to help their children. I mean, you know, some of us will I will joke about trying to help our children with maths and actually being far worse than the child <laughs> at the subject. But But it's a real fear and concern for people who have anxieties about their own level of education and how little they are able to help their children because they don't understand what they're doing. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. And um, a piece of research came out today from, I believe, the University of Sussex that looked at parental education as well as poverty in terms of the amount of education that children are getting at home. So I do think parental confidence in maths, as you say, and in fact, in any subject area, I think that's absolutely a factor. And it takes us back to the widening of the gap around disadvantage. I have something reassuring, though, for parents of um, who speak, who don't speak English at home. And that's some great work from Dr. Roberto Filippi at the Institute of Education, who talks about the um, impact on the brain of multilinguistic families. So if you are engaging your children in the love of learning, the excitement around ideas and oracy and vocabulary, but vocabulary in your own language, then that still puts them in a very good place. So it doesn't have to be English in order to be really great learning for children. Finally, and, and briefly, if you would, how will the transition for these families out of lockdown be different? I think transition is immensely important. So I just want to focus on schools. And it's all about working collaboratively with children and families. So take the child with autism who comes back and finds the scent of the hand gel 
really, really difficult. If that child is shouted at, then they are going to develop negative beliefs about school and real has a real impact on their self-confidence and will break the relationship between school and family. If, however, the school has a conversation with the child and the family and they test out different hand gels or they think about whether they could put the hand gel into a plate for the child or whether they could use wet wipes instead, all of that will make a difference. So it's not just a black and white picture. It's how that transition back is managed. Is it managed with care? Is it managed with compassion? And is it managed with collaboration? Fascinating stuff there. So you're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. And if there's a question about coronavirus you'd like our researchers to answer, you can email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk or tweet at UCL. And we'd also really appreciate it if you could complete our little survey, which can be found on the UCL Minds website if you haven't had a chance to do so yet. So the schools are and have been reopening, but I hate to tell everybody it's nearly time for the summer holidays. Shafina, what does this term look like for you and your students? How much time have we got? (laughs) (laughs) So not as much as we'd want, Shafina. It's been been, um, a lot of, I think, realisation. And I'm sure many parents, teachers and educators and students would agree. I think there's been, um, you know, I'm going to echo what uh, Lee and Amelia have just said. It's not so black and white. You know, there's been huge disparity across the country, as we know, um, between those who have access to, say, for example, technology, remote learning, uh, whether it's teachers, whether it's uh, students. You know, there's been lots going on in the background that schools are trying to facilitate. You know, we initially when lockdown happened, I think, and I teach teenagers, I teach A-level, so I can speak for that age group. I think some of them are quite sort of, oh, wow, I don't have to wake up early anymore. I don't have to take the train. You know, um, I'm not going to get those detentions and things like that. And they started gaming and, and you know, um, really taking advantage of the fact that they didn't have to be in this formal structured environment. But as it's as it's continued and we've gone back to school um, with social distancing in place, you just see the smiles on their faces. I mean, I'm having kids across the corridor. I don't teach saying, hi, miss, hi, miss. And it's just, it's wonderful to see. You can see, <laughs> you can just see that they want to be back. You know, they want that structure. They want that social interaction. They want to be cared for. And um, I teach in an inner London school where, you know, there is um, there, there are a range of different types of children that we have. Some obviously from disadvantaged families and and, and echoing exactly as what's been discussed already, it is those that have been hardest hit. Now, we are a tech school, so, you know, uh, our principal has delivered laptops um, and dongles to, to families that don't have access to it, which I think has been wonderful. But I think it's a bit more deeper than that as well in terms of, are these kids ready to take this on? How can they work out how to learn on their own? You know, and I think I think that becomes a question for are we developing resilience in our young people? Are we making them resourceful and creative about how to manage change? Now, this is a massive, massive situation that we're all going through. We've not been through anything like this. And I think I think at an education level, we need to have these kinds of very real conversations about how do we really manage change? How can we be resourceful in, in these kinds of situations? And, um, you know, I've seen some of my some of my students have really flourished in this. You know, they're they're, they're watching all these TED Talks and all these wonderful documentaries and, and asking me some really high level university level questions, whilst others haven't done anything for weeks. 
So, you know, we've had had to ring home. We've got a very strong pastoral team. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a gentle nudge rather than a push. You know, why aren't you doing your work? It's more, well, what's going on? How can I support? You know, can you get this much into me rather than all of it? You know, how can I help you to catch up kind of thing? How are you preparing for the next academic year, I, I, which is, you know, coming across, coming at us very soon? So we, we have obviously um, the social distancing and things are in place already in terms of the physical aspect. In terms of the learning aspect, we're already thinking about how to, how to embed the, 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 what the government's called catch up. You know, how are we going to close those gaps that have, that have happened with some learners? How are we going to make sure that it's not too stressful? Um, and, and I think for most of us, it's going to be engagement, you know, getting getting the happiness back into the classroom, the love of learning back. And I think that is where the real challenge is, because some of them have really just switched off. And so I think we've got contingency plans in place should social distancing be required for the, the bubbling, the bubble side of things. But we're also looking at how do we go back as much as possible to normality and having some structure back and having conversations with our learners, you know, what was it like? What was this six months of your life really like? Um, so we're preparing for it at many different levels at both mental health, as I think is going to be the biggest one, but also a very gentle, gentle sort of come back to structure. And this is the classroom environment and the socialization aspect, I think is going to be hugely important um, going forward. So we've got plans in place to do that. So you teach A-levels. Yeah. How are you dealing with the anxiety that teenagers are feeling about exams being cancelled and their prospects for university looking, you know, really very insecure at the moment? That's a really good question. And, and that's one that I've been actually trying to address for a while now. So my year 13s, I have... I have, you know, drop in calls with them on Microsoft Teams. They literally say, Miss, can we just have a catch up? And, you know, some of them have, have done, um, one of them has taken a job at Sainsbury's to keep himself busy. The others are reading and doing things like that. And I've said to them, look, we have, um, you will go to university. Now, I'm trying to be as positive as possible. You will go to university. We don't know what the grades are going to look like when they come out in August, because obviously there's been discussion already about how the predicted grades and the ranking has happened. But um, for some of them, I think they've just come to realise that, you know what, we'll just deal with it on results day. Some of them are quite uh, mature in that sense. They're thinking, well, this is this is a very new situation that nobody has really prepared for. So we can only expect the best. And some are really hopeful and saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to get something. I'm really going to do it because I know I've done my absolute best this entire two years and I've got everything behind me. Um, the anxiety is very real, very, very real. Um, and I will, I will again say what Lee was saying with the obesity. You know, they are binge eating, they are watching Netflix till all hours. Their sleep routines have gone out the window, and I think this is their response to being to to, to the uncertainty and the anxiety. They don't quite know how to manage this, so they are resorting to to eating and watching television quite a lot. Um, so I'm trying to push, to watch, watch some good stuff, watch this, watch that. You know, sort of directing them to something um, a little bit less stressful, if you like. Um, and, and as I said, I think these this group, the current year 13s, when they start their university programs, be it remotely or face to face, I think the universities will need to really look at how to nurture them into their programs. I don't think it's going to be one of those. Here we go, lecture one and, and off you go. I think there needs to be some sort of um, awareness and, and, and program in place to help these learners back into education in general. Um, and that would be that would be something really helpful for them. 
So, Shafina, you've you've brought us actually to to the uh, towards the end of the program, and uh, uh, what I wanted to do to conclude this episode is acknowledge some research from a previous podcast guest, Daisy Fancourt, which showed that people, uh, young people, are more anxious and stressed about the future than adults are. So, I I want to ask you all three of you now. What do you think we and our listeners who are looking after children can do to help and support young people through this time? Lee, let's start with you. So I, I, would, I would say recognising that we, like we did before COVID, that, you know, when people have got extreme anxiety and low mood, that that's just not normal being a teenager. And that's not normal how you would respond to COVID. I think it's really important that we have the structures in place and that families and young people um, can come forward to get professional help for their mental health. That's going to be so critical. We knew that um, that the provision of care for mental health was was not adequate before, and we're going to need more of it. And I think the last thing I would say, really, you know, uh, as emotive as it might sound, as a generation, children and young people have given up loads in COVID, um, and potentially, as we've talked about that's going to have a big impact on their futures. And we've done that um, to children, in a sense, because of what we had to do in the national interest. So it is now profoundly in the national interest for us to emphasise the importance of, of basically providing what children and young people need as a country so we can get things back on track for them. Yes, it's curious, isn't it, that children and young people are in some ways the least affected, but the most affected. I mean, they... But they've given up the most. And, yes. and I think when we look back on this, it'll be those quiet voices, you know, children, young people who have got quieter voices because, you know, they don't have the option to talk as much as, as adults do. And the elderly in care homes, you know, it's been the quiet voices that will be one of the most powerful and hard stories to read and learn about, I think, when this is all over. Indeed. Uh, one final point from you. You've talked about mental health services really not being uh, up to scratch at the, uh, you know, before coronavirus hit. There'll be a lot of parents out there who will be worrying about the mental health of their uh, children who recognise that they need professional help. How on earth do they go about getting it at the moment? Well, there will be the usual routes. I mean, the routes into it are still there. So, you know, I mean, again, that varies from place to place and there'll still be the routes of being able to contact your GP. If they were already under a hospital, the hospital can and find ways through for them uh, and, and access to local child and adolescent mental health services. You know, they, they will all be there and, and accessible. I think it's important to remember that, you know, we know that presentation to healthcare services for all age groups, but particularly children, has gone down significantly through COVID. So it's important that, that families know that those services are actually still there for them. Um, the bigger picture is making sure that they're sustainable at a country level um, and that, you know, we, they're invested in and that training is put in place. So I think the, the, the processes haven't changed and will still stay the same. The only thing that might be affected, of course, was that the NHS long term plan um, talked about um, embedding mental health screening and early interventions within schools. And for me, you know, that's a big worry because that was where a lot of the emphasis um, to improve mental health delivery for children and young people was going to go. And what we've just been talking about with children not being in school and the potential um, for, for that not to be back on track and lots of things to catch up on. It still needs to be part of the focus, the mental health and well-being as part of the whole spectrum of what was going to happen before. 
Uh, Amelia, what's your thoughts about this? How do we uh, support young people through this time? Yes, I'm so glad you asked that question. On our website, which is the UCL Centre for Inclusive Education, we have got a raft of resources that we've been collating over the last three months, including support on mental health, support on homeschooling and support for transitions. And we cover everything from social stories for children with autism to visual timetables to apps around mental health. So it's a wealth of resources and they are all free to download. Additionally, it's so interesting that Lee mentioned back on track because we've just received funding from the Higher Education Innovation Fund to do some research into how we can support schools with helping children, particularly vulnerable children, to get back on track. It's actually called Back on Track. And part of that research will be to produce a document that will be free to download to support children and families and schools in managing that transition back to education thinking very much about well-being as well as attainment. Thank you. Shafina, you're absolutely at the coalface. You're in contact with uh, young people every day. What can their parents and carers do to help them? Well, I think I think at school level, we already, you know, schools do have these systems in place already with safeguarding, and there's always a safeguarding officer, um, a delegated one um, at school. And I think, you know, I think they are going to have to face the significant impact of this and be the, the port of call to direct them to further things like social services and things. But what, what um, uh, Amelia just mentioned about the wealth of resources that UCL are offering, I think that's what schools are going to look to, particularly those who don't have uh, much experience or or don't know where to look for support. So I think it's going to be for parents to contact schools as they have been doing uh, but I think the, the offering from universities and mental health specialists like um, like, um, like UCL um, offering will be very, very useful because some of them are literally asking, where do I go? Who do I ask? And they're being sort of ping pong from one place to another often. So I think I think a big collaboration um, kind of uh, way forward would be really, really good for parents, teachers and students alike to know that there is this big uh, place that you can go to and there'll be lots of support available. Uh, my worry is the sustainability of it. As we know, there's been such a huge increase in, in reports um, from, from various different uh, organisations on, on children and their welfare. So I think it's about how we can efficiently, effectively uh, sort of reduce the time it takes for people to get support. I think that's going to be the key thing, rather than so that they don't get lost into the, into the numbers game in the system. Um, I think it's going to have to, re- it's going to require quite a strong, clear strategy going forward. And is there anything particular that you've seen uh, particular parents doing that's been really helpful? I want to end on a note of positivity here. I think parents have been parents. The ones I've at least spoken to and 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 um, in my college have been really positive. They they you know they're taking on all the support that the school is offering, and where where there are things that, that we can offer externally, we'll say, oh look, I, I will guide them to certain databases, certain information things, and it's keeping that communication going. I think that is the key thing. That how are we communicating with parents about their children? And often um, they want to help, but they don't know where to look. So I think having a very strong communication with the parental community at large is going to be, I think, a very positive way forward. Thank you so much and thank you all of you because it's been such an interesting discussion and really young people, it's such a cliche but oh so true, young people are our future and I think we owe them, as you say Lee, 
an enormous amount at the moment. You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the splendid Keris Bradley. Our guests today were Dr Lee Hudson, Dr Amelia Roberts and Shafina Varo. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, of course you would. Subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. And whilst you're there, don't forget that survey. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon.